All right, Revelation chapter 19. It's hard to imagine a more thrilling chapter in the scriptures than Revelation chapter 19. If you are not excited about what we study together tonight, then you're dead. That's all I have to say. There's nothing more to say uh, about that. This, this is just absolutely one of the most thrilling chapters in the Bible. Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he's avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen! Alleluia! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. We've seen quite a a, a line run through the book of Revelation. You know, it started out with John and his spectacular vision of Jesus on the Isle of Patmos. That was in Revelation chapter 1. Then going on into chapter 2 and 3, you had seven letters written to seven churches, seven churches that existed in John's day, but also speaking prophetically of the course of church history in rough uh, ages throughout the the, the whole course of church history. Then beginning in chapter 4, we're taken up to the scene in the heavens where there's a scroll in the right hand of God and no one is found worthy to open it except for one person, and that's the Lamb of God the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself. And he alone is worthy to unroll that scroll that that is really the disposition of all the affairs of creation. It's the end result, the the, the last will and testament, the official document. It's It's the story written out before it happens, if you will. And who's worthy to unroll it? Well, Jesus unrolls it. And as it does in this end period before the second coming of Jesus Christ, calamity after calamity is unleashed upon the earth. Horrific plagues and and desperate things are poured out upon the earth in this period that we know as the Great Tribulation. As the book makes its way, chapter after chapter, we're introduced to all these different persons who will arise and be prominent during the Great Tribulation. You have the 144,000 faithful witnesses uh, from Israel who will testify in the earth in those days. You have the Antichrist and his false prophet who will rule the earth and persecute the godly in the, during the days of the Great Tribulation. You, you have the, the Son of Man, you have Israel born, you have all these different things coming forth and coming into play in the last two chapters that we saw, Revelation chapter 17 and 18, we saw Babylon reflected in religious sense in this great harlot that sat upon the beast, but then also reflected in its economic or or materialistic sense in this great city. And both the the harlot and the city were tremendously and horrifically judged by the hand of God. Now in Revelation chapter 19, all of heaven rejoices. It praises God for the judgment upon Babylon. John says in verse 1 that he heard a loud voice of a great multitude. Now back in Revelation chapter 7, we saw a great multitude saved out of the great tribulation. And they were ready for the end of the world system. They were ready for the Antichrist's reign on earth. A part of this great multitude, those those martyrs 
uh, falling at the hand of the Antichrist during the Great Tribulation. They, they cried out for God's righteous judgment upon the earth in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. Well, now their prayer is going to be answered. Babylon, the world system, the, 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 the flow of things, the culture, the society, the thinking, the intellect, everything that establishes itself in this, if you want to call it a vast anti-God conspiracy, it's an informal conspiracy, but it's a spiritual conspiracy nonetheless. Arrayed against God and all of his people, well, it's gone. It's not going to last forever. Babylon will fall. And when it falls, all of heaven celebrates. Do you see it repeated again and again in these verses? Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. It's kind of interesting. This wonderful world, borrowed from Hebrew. You might recognize this word from the Psalms, right? It's simply the word hallelujah from the Psalms. It's sort of taken over into the Greek language. That's why in many Bibles it's spelled with A beginning at the first letter instead of H as it is in the Old Testament. What I want you to understand though is this, this glorious word occurs four times here in Revelation chapter 19 and never again in the entire New Testament. Well, I think it's fitting. It belongs here because God's people rejoice without restraint at his victory over Babylon. Do you know what hallelujah means? It means praise the Lord. And it means it in the imperative sense. It's me saying to you, now come on, praise the Lord. Praise him with me. I'm praising God, you praise him too. Hallelujah, that's what it means. Some people seem afraid of saying hallelujah. Friends, I'm here to tell you that we're all going to be saying it in heaven. Look at it in Revelation chapter 19. It's a glorious word, it's a wonderful word. Now, we shouldn't say it in a manner where we say it without thinking. Sometimes people allow spiritual words to come into their vocabulary like that in the fashion that some people use, you know, they use hallelujah or praise God. I was walking down the street, praise God, and I met a man, hallelujah, and he said, how you doing, Dave? And a hallelujah, I said, you know, that kind of thing. And you know, it's, it's a glorious word. It shouldn't be used in that fashion. But friends, it's a wonderful word. Some people consider it an angelic word. They say you can't really reproduce it in any human language. Augustine said that the word hallelujah that the feeling and the saying of it embodied all of the blessedness of heaven. Now, why are they praising God? Look at it here in verse 2. For true and righteous are his judgments. This section is really the climax of Revelation chapter 18. In Revelation chapter 18, Babylon's friends mourned her fall. We saw that, how all the friends and the captains and the politicians, and everybody, oh, they all mourn the fall of Babylon. But here, God's people celebrate it. And they celebrate it because of his work of judgment. And then, if you notice there in verse 5, a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants. And those who fear him, both small and great. It's wonderful to see the commentators wrestle with one another over who this great voice is. Some people say, well, it must be Jesus calling this out from the throne. Or they say, well, it could be one of the angels that's around the throne of God. I don't see where it matters one way or another. It's just everybody's shouting and exhorting one another to praise God and to glorify him. And why? Not only for the fall of Babylon but also for the blessedness of the people of God. Take a look now at verse 6. And I heard, as it were, 
the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Friends, I have to tell you that the height of praise on earth is only a dim, dark shadow of what these verses describe. At this point, the book of Revelation approaches the consummation of God's plan for all of history. So as we come to that summit peak of all of history, it's fitting that we also come to a summit peak of praise. Look at it there in verse 6. He says, He heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings. You hear the sound of the ocean cracking and, and roaring and a majestic wave crashing upon the shore. You hear the sound of Niagara Falls roaring down, and it's almost deafening. But it's not only the sound of many waters. It's almost the sound of many waters combined with the sound of mighty thundering, shaking the earth. Friends, can I point out something that's very obvious here? This is loud, enthusiastic praise. It is certainly possible to make our praise and worship a self-indulgent focus on our own feelings. That's a possible, it's a trap that some people escape into. They judge worship by how they feel in it. Well, friends, that's not an adequate judge for our worship of the living God. We judge it by how he feels in it, not by how we feel. We worship him for his sake, for his glory. Not, not just so that we can get a feeling, so it's possible to make our praise and worship a self-indulgent focus on our feelings, or it's certainly possible to make our praise and worship a disorderly expression of the flesh. You're just going to say, well, let's just release all our inhibitions and be wild and, and bark like dogs or cluck like chickens. It's all under the Lord. But friends, let me say that while those are possible extremes... And at the same time, while we recognize that there's something precious and irreplaceable about quiet times alone with God, there's also something absolutely thrilling about a large number of Christians worshiping God with sincere enthusiasm. And I tell you, there's a dynamic that happens in worship where you just say, the more the better. It's not like that with every aspect of Christian ministry. You know, with counseling, you don't say, well, the more the better. I mean, if I can counsel a thousand people at one time, all the better. No, it just doesn't work that way. Prayer, you can't pray for a thousand people at one time, not with any real effectiveness. Oftentimes in teaching, if it's a large, large group, then the intimacy of the situation is lost. Friends, it's not like that with worship, is it? With worship, you basically say, the more, the merrier. If you've ever been to a a stadium event that different Christian groups put on or hold, you've been remarkably struck at how powerful the dynamic of a stadium full of enthusiastic Christians worshiping God can be. It's absolutely thrilling. Now, friends, if it's thrilling down here on earth, 
Can you imagine what it's going to be like in heaven? It's going to be absolutely incredible. Can you sense the strength of this? As John says, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Friends, doesn't it sort of rebuke us in our weak, timid worship of God? Sometimes I just don't know what, what holds us back. Sometimes, I guess it just has to be a sign to the door of pride. You say, well, I don't sing very well, and I want to sort of hide my voice. Well, it's okay. The other people don't sing very well either. You can still lift your voice and praise to God. Of course, you don't want to make yourself a distraction. You don't want to cry out above the voice of everybody else. But friends, you should lift your voice in hearty praise to God. Charles Spurgeon said, We ought not to worship God in a half-hearted sort of way, as if it were now our duty to bless God, but we felt it to be a weary business, and we would get through it as soon as we quickly could, and have done with it, the sooner the better. No, no. All that is within me bless his holy name. Come, my heart, wake up, and summon all the powers which wait upon thee. Mechanical worship is easy but worthless. Come rouse yourself, my brother. Rouse thyself, O my soul. In another sermon, Spurgeon said, All Christian duties should be done joyfully, but especially the work of praising the Lord. I've been in congregations where the tune was slow to the very last degree where the time was so dreadfully slow that one wondered whether they would ever be able to sing through the 119th Psalm, whether, to use Watt's expression, eternity would not be too short for them to get through it. (laughs) And altogether, the spirit of the people seemed to be so damp, so heavy, so dead, that we might have supposed that they were meant to prepare their minds for a hanging rather than for blessing the ever-gracious God. I don't know if you've ever been in a meeting like that. I have. Oh, but friends, it shouldn't be like that. Not among the people of God. One more from Spurgeon, speaking on this specific text. He says, heaven is always heaven, and unspeakably full of blessedness, but even heaven has its holidays. Even bliss has its overflowings. And on that day when the spring tide of the infinite ocean of joy shall come, what a measureless flood of delight shall overflow the souls of all glorified spirits, We do not know yet, beloved, of what happiness we are capable. That's what it's going to be like on this day. Friends, the Bible says that all heaven rejoices over one sinner that comes to repentance. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when all the saints are gathered together in celebration of their common unity and the victory over the world that Jesus Christ has won? Look at verse 7. It'll show you why they're so happy. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. You see, one of the reasons this great multitude is so filled with praise is because the time has come for the Lamb of God to be joined to his people in a union that's so close it can only be compared to the marriage of a man and a woman. The marriage of the Lamb, who is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, It's a picture used frequently throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, Israel is presented as God's wife, who's often unfaithful. 
Hosea, Isaiah, Ezekiel all present Israel in that fashion. In the New Testament, the church is presented as the fiancé of Jesus, waiting for this day of marriage. You'll find that in 2 Corinthians, in the book of Ephesians. Friends, let's remind ourselves that in biblical times, marriage involved two major events. There was the betrothal and there was the wedding. Usually, the, the two were separated by a period of time. And in between the betrothal and the wedding, the couple was considered to be married. They were under obligations of faithfulness and commitment to one another. And so a man would make the promise unto his his bride, and they would become betrothed, and they would be regarded as engaged. And then on a night, at his choosing, at an unknown hour, oh, the bride would know the approximate time and that, but he always picked the, 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 the day and the hour at an unexpected time. He would come and make a procession to the bride's house. And then they would return to the house of the groom for the marriage feast. Friends, you see the analogy, don't you? We're betrothed to Jesus Christ right now, and we're under vows of of faithfulness and obligation unto Him. But we await the day when our heavenly groom is going to come to our house and take us back to His house, where we can go and have this beautiful marriage of the Lamb. Now, any bride wants to make herself ready, doesn't she? And this bride does. Look at it, verse 7. And his wife has made herself ready. What do we do to make ourselves ready for this wedding? Well, there's much for us to do, but ultimately it's a work that God does in us. I think of what it says in Ephesians chapter 5 about the nurture and care that Jesus has for his church as a bridegroom has for a bride. And this point is emphasized when John notes, look in verse 8, that to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. This is something that God grants unto us. And in this perfect union with Jesus, his people will be clean and bright before him. Oh, don't we look forward to that day. Friends, I'll tell you, it's it's a tough thing to walk in this world. There's sin all around us. There's sin tempted to us by the devil. There's sin offered to us by the world. But worst of all, you know, there's sin within these old corrupt hearts of ours. But one day it's not going to be like that. One day Jesus Christ is going to come and bring his bride home. And on that day, as it says, we'll be clean and bright before him. But friends, you can fix yourself up for that day. Take a look at it here in verse 8. It says, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. You see, believers are divinely created for prepared good works in front of them. And these righteous acts are what fill the hope chest of the bride of Christ. Righteous acts literally in the ancient Greek is righteousnesses. It's the righteous deeds of the saints. Think of a bride preparing herself for that wedding day, and she stores away things, keepsakes, mementos, treasures in a hope chest. Well, friends, that's what the Lord wants you to do with your righteous acts. With your good works before the Lord, you you store up precious treasure for that day when you're united with your bridegroom, Jesus Christ. By the way, I can't help but be reminded, too, in this context of the great apostle Paul and his heart, how it was a model for the heart of every faithful minister. You see, Paul spoke of his desire that Christians would be presented before the Lord pure. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, 
For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. That's the desire of every Christian worker. Every godly Christian minister looks at the people that he serves and he says, I want to get you to heaven, chaste and pure before the Lord. I want to get you there with a hope chest full of righteousnesses done unto the Lord. I want to get you to heaven prepared to meet with your heavenly bridegroom. If you want to see how wonderful it's going to be, look at verse 9. He says, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, blessed indeed. You know, when Jesus was on this earth and before he ascended into heaven, he himself eagerly anticipated this marriage supper. He longingly spoke of the day when he would drink of the fruit of the vine again with his disciples in the kingdom. Friends, in Jewish culture, the marriage supper was the best banquet or party anyone knew. It was always an occasion of tremendous joy. According to rabbinical teaching, obedience to the commandments was suspended during a wedding celebration if obeying a commandment might lessen the joy of the occasion. You're having your wedding feast and it's the Sabbath and somebody needs to run down to the store to get some more cold cuts for the sandwiches? Well, send him out. You're not breaking the Sabbath. It's going to lessen the joy. If you can't have the sandwich, go send him. Anything that would take away from the joy, well, it's on hold. Friends, on that day, in that beautiful marriage supper of the Lamb, On that day, everyone will see the church for what she really is, the precious bride of Christ. Now, right now, you could say that the church is kind of like Cinderella. We sit among the ashes. We're not glamorous. We're despised and rejected by the world. The world as a whole looks at believers and they think they're fools. We're living our lives for nothing, for silliness. We're we're not taking advantage of all the great fun that's out there in the world. And look at what we're living for. Look look at yourselves. It's a Wednesday evening here, and you're out here, you're you're listening to some guy talk about the Bible, for heaven's sakes. Well, that seems absurd to many people. Friends, on that day, it's going to be all different. On that day... When Jesus Christ appears in glory, his bride will appear in glory also, and his glorious shining will shine forth and spread over the bride. And believe me, all of creation will know how glorious, how glorious the bride of Christ is. Cinderella will be in all her glory, and it's never going to strike midnight then. It'll be that way for eternity. Sound too good to be true? Look at the end of verse 9. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. It's almost like John's going, no, wait, angel. You know, this is too much. He says, no, no, no. These are the true sayings of God. This anticipated consummation will take place. And even though it might seem too good to be true, it will happen. And take a look here now as... As John loses himself, verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We scratch our heads. We think, why would such a godly man like John make a blunder like this? And I think that we would be amazed at John's self-control if we experienced the same visions that he had. 
John either felt that the angel represented God or he was just beside himself with an excitement at the scene that he saw. But the angel stops him short. He says, don't do that. No created being should be worshipped. Now, this is in contrast to Jesus. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus invites worship. He receives the worship. He receives worship from angels, and he receives worship from men. Friends, this is one of the most straightforward and remarkable evidences in the Bible of the deity of Jesus Christ. If he were not God, then it would be sin for him to receive worship as he accepts it throughout the New Testament. No, instead, this this angel says to John, I'm your fellow servant. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, there are many important and, and, and established differences between angelic beings and human beings. Yet we can all serve the same God. We can be fellow servants of the same Lord. Then he goes on and says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Friends, in all prophetic teaching, if you just don't come back to the spirit of Jesus time and time again, you're missing the mark some way or another. Here we go. Fasten your seatbelts. Verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, I want you to understand that everything we've seen in the book of Revelation, from, from Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, to, to chapter 19, verse 10, all of that has been just an introduction to this. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is heaven opened and Jesus Christ returning in glory to this earth. Now he returns in power and in glory. According to the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, when Jesus returns, he's going to come first to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Friends, I'm not talking about a spiritual presence of Jesus on this earth. I'm talking about a literal Jesus making a literal physical return in power and glory and touching down at a physical location, the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, right across from the Temple Mount. And it'll be split in two. Jesus Christ will go and take possession of the earth. In Isaiah chapter 64, a prophetic plea is placed in the people of God on the earth in that day, where we read, Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Oh, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. That prayer for deliverance will be on the lips of the Jewish people surviving through the Great Tribulation. I'm sure it'll be on the lips of Gentile Christians as well. But friends, unlikely as it may seem now, those 
Jewish believers will cry out to Jesus, their Messiah, for their deliverance. And as a whole, the Jewish people will embrace him as their Savior. When the heavens are parted open and when Jesus Christ returns to this earth, it's going to be to a Jewish people that receive him as Savior and Lord. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 39, where he said, I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hard pressed by their terrible persecution from the Antichrist, Israel as a whole will turn their hearts towards Jesus and he will deliver them at this late hour. And friends, when Jesus comes, he comes on a white horse. In biblical times, especially among Israel, most all soldiers were foot soldiers. Now I don't have to tell you, If you've got 10 foot soldiers against one guy on a horse, the one guy on the horse has a big advantage. Because, first of all, to have a horse spoke of honor. It was prestigious. It was expensive. To have a horse spoke of power. It was a powerful animal. It spoke of speed. And the color of this horse, the white horse, is always emblematic of victory in the ancient world. As he comes, notice it here, verse 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. Friends, he keeps his promises. Now, Now, sometimes we rejoice in that. Other times we tremble at it. Because he promised to return in judgment, and now he's making good on that promise. He makes good on all of his promises, including his promises of judgment. And if you notice there in verse 11, it says, And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus comes as a judge and a general to make war. That The world that rejected him before rejects him again. But this time, Jesus judges those who reject him. Friends, the, the world likes a pale, anemic image of Jesus. They like the Jesus who would do nothing except pat little children on the head and help little old ladies across the street. And friends, while we rejoice in the meek and humble and gentle nature of Jesus, because he is all of those things, we also recognize, friends, that he is a righteous God of judgment, that he will come, and as it says here in verse 11, In righteousness, he judges and makes war. See, friends, this is a Jesus we can't control. This is someone who not only demands our attention, but our submission. And I would like to remind you that this dramatic display of judgment only comes at the end of a long season of grace, patience, and mercy. This is no rush to judgment. Jesus has amply displayed his nature of mercy, forgiveness, and grace to a fallen world. We saw this in the book of Revelation over and over again. Now the picture presented, the end is pushed back and back and back as far as it possibly can go. God gives enough time, as much time as he possibly can to a Christ-rejecting world to repent and to change their hearts before him. But finally there's a time where it must stop. And now he comes to judge a world hardened and totally given over in their rebellion against him. Friends, all of these passages point to a sad conclusion that on that day of judgment, it will be too late for men to expect the mercy of God. 
When the heavens are open and when Jesus Christ comes accompanied by the armies of heaven and men get on their knees and cry out for mercy at that time, it's too late. There's nothing more inflexible than divine judgment when grace has been rejected. And this scene, this scene of awesome judgment teaches us that. Look at it again in verse 11. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. Isn't it funny? You wonder if there's anything characteristic of warfare, it's unrighteousness. I mean, even the most well-intentioned, even the best uh, wars fought for the best reasons. There's terrible individual acts of unrighteousness and injustice. But not, not with this war. His eyes were like a flame of fire penetrating through every heart. Nothing can be hidden before his sight. And then it says in verse 12, And on his head were many crowns. You know, the last time this earth saw Jesus, he wore a crown of thorns, but not in Revelation chapter 19. Now he wears many crowns. Friends, in the ancient Greek language that the New Testament is written in, there's two words translated crown. There's one, the ancient Greek word diadema, which is the crown of royalty and authority. Then the other one is the Stephanos. It's the crown of achievement. The crowns that Jesus wears right now are the crowns of royalty and authority. And the fact that he has many crowns means that Jesus is the ultimate in royal authority and power. It's a visible manifestation of what we mean when we say he's king of kings and it's expression of unlimited sovereignty. We also see in verse 13... That he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. His robe is dipped, or perhaps the word can mean sprinkled in blood. There's a very warm debate among Bible scholars whether this is the blood of his enemies or his own sacrificial blood put there as a reminder of his great sacrifice for us. Either is quite possible. Notice who accompanies the Son of God. Verse 14, the armies in heaven. Friends, these are God's people. Now, I don't doubt that there's going to be angels among them, but these are God's people. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're born again by the Spirit of God. You have a heavenly destiny. You will be part of this army. You will come with Jesus Christ to to conquer this earth. You see the... And the Son of God leads the people of God from heaven against the earth. There's no mention of any kind of armor or weapon for any soldier in this great army that follows Jesus. We're unarmed. Oh, it says we ride white horses. But the only armor, the only weapon that we have is the only one we need. Did you notice this? Verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, Followed him on white horses. That's all you need. The white, clean linen of the saints, that robe of righteousness. It's better than a bulletproof vest, my friends. No harm can come to a child of God. No harm can come to one of these soldiers in the army of Jesus Christ. Now it says here, verse 15, that out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Friends, the idea isn't that Jesus holds a sword in his mouth like a buccaneer or that he's spitting swords. It's a dramatic reference to the power of his word. 
The idea is that Jesus Christ conquers by the power of his word. When he returns to this earth, he's not going to have to duke it out with armies fighting against him. You know, Jesus saying, well, send an artillery shot to that flank and over there, send a missile over there. No, he defeats it all with the power of his word. Be gone, be vanished. It's, it's over. I can't help but think of the arrest of Jesus Christ when he was captured by that band of soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they came up to Jesus and approached him, they asked, well, are you Jesus Nazareth? Are you the one? And Jesus simply replied by saying, I am. And at that holy utterance of the holy name of God, the arresting soldiers all fell back. They were all knocked down. I don't think it was a pleasant thing for them. I don't think it was a blessed experience for them. They were probably terrified. It showed how Jesus was in control. You know, the soldiers got back up again, and Jesus could have just saying, I am, I am, and knocked them down and walked out of there. <laughs> My friends, it shows the power of his word. Jesus needs no weapon on this other than the power of his word. If you notice, he's going to rule. Verse 15, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Jesus comes to rule and reign and triumph, to rule the nations with the rod of iron as predicted in Psalm 2. He comes as the king of kings to displace every king reigning on this earth. Friends, we're not talking about the improvement or the Christianization of existing governments. No. We're not talking about the spiritual conversion of countries or empires. So that, you know, they're they're the same basic things. They're just more Christian now. No. We're talking about the total displacement of all the world's sovereigns, of all the world's governments, and the taking of all dominion and authority out of their hands and putting it in the hands of Jesus Christ as the only true king of the world. Every government bureaucrat, Every king, every administrator, every member of Congress, every political ruler all over the world. You know what? This is your pink slip. You're out of a job. Jesus Christ has come to rule and reign. We say, well, he can't do it all by himself. What's he going to do? Well, you're right. He's going to point his people. That army following behind him, that's, you, uh, that's an occupying army. Those are the administrators of his kingdom. They're going to come and they're going to run the earth with Jesus Christ. Those who survive through the great tribulation, as we'll see next week, there will be a judgment. Not all who survive the great tribulation will go into the millennial kingdom. But those who are approved, those who will, they'll go and they'll survive and they'll live on planet earth as ruled over by Jesus Christ and that army that followed him. Because, friends, he's going to rule them with a rod of iron and it's going to be there as king of kings and lord of lords. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Isn't that a remarkable figure? Probably the idea behind it is that this angel is so bright in his glorious radiance that this angel can stand in front of the sun and be seen. That's how bright the shining of his glory is. I saw an angel standing in the sun 
And he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of the horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. You see this angel standing in the sun cries out to all the birds and says, There's going to be a great slaughter at Armageddon. Come and feast on the carrion of these dead bodies. It's really an appalling figure, isn't it? We don't know it very much in modern warfare because we have the technology and the mechanical means to recover dead bodies and such. But friends, in ancient warfare, after a battle, there'd be dead bodies strewn across a field. And they would stay there until the birds or the wild beasts would come and pick them clean. And this is the picture. The bodies stacked deep on Armageddon's battlefield. These people foolish enough to try to resist Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Jesus Christ coming to this earth and and, and people gathering together in armies to oppose him. Thinking, well, we'll shoot him out of the sky. We'll, We'll train that cruise missile on him. Align the coordinates. Well, look, and look at the big army behind. Let's send some fire their way. No, it's not going to happen, of course. None of it will succeed, but men are foolish enough to think they can do it. Friends, the, the bodies will be stacked deep on the battlefield of Armageddon. So the angel says, get ready, birds. You're going to have a great feast. Now, who's going to be there? Well, kings, captains, mighty men, slaves, both small and great, Men of all stations are judged. The high and the low together. If you remain hardened in your rejection of Jesus, God is an equal opportunity judge. Oh, sometimes we want to take a look at the rich man and give him a break, don't we? Well, he's rich, you know, cut him some slack. Or we want to look at the poor man and give him a break. Well, hasn't he had it hard enough? Shouldn't we give him a break? No, absolute fairness, Jesus Christ will judge. Rich and the poor, small and the great, mighty and the weak together. And they'll gather together, as it says, for the great supper of the great, or excuse me, verse 17, the supper of the great God. You know, there are four notable suppers described in the Bible. In one of his parables, Jesus likened salvation to a supper that men were invited to. And so, the supper of salvation that's alluded to in Jesus' parable, that's the first supper. The second supper is the Lord's Supper, the commemoration of Jesus' sacrifice. The third supper is the marriage supper of the Lamb. We saw that previously in the chapter. And the fourth supper is the supper of the great God. Now, if you reject the first supper, the supper of salvation, then the second supper, the Lord's Supper, means nothing to you. If you reject the first supper, you won't be present at the third supper. The marriage supper of the Lamb. But friends, if you reject that first supper of salvation, you will be present at the fourth. Everybody gets to attend at least one of these suppers. (laughs) But some will eat and others are eaten at the suppers. Hey, I didn't write it. (laughs) Verse 19. 
And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and the birds were filled with their flesh." Friends, some people find it hard to understand how man could be so foolish to try and keep Jesus and this heavenly army off of the earth in a pitched battle. Many people suggest that really the armies gathered together there in Israel, in the valley of Jezreel, there where the battle of Armageddon will be fought, that they gather together there maybe to fight against each other, maybe to conquer Israel, maybe to do something. But maybe then when they understand that Jesus Christ is returning... And by the way, any careful student of prophecy will be able to note during the Great Tribulation, from the time the abomination of desolation is erected in the temple in Jerusalem, they will be able to count the days until Jesus Christ will return. Friends, the world is going to know when Jesus Christ is going to come back. Now, I'm not speaking about the rapture for the church. That's a day and hour which no man knows. But this glorious second coming with heavens open and Christ returning with his church and heavenly armies. Everybody's going to know that day. And they're going to prepare for it. They're going to think of it like trying to repel the allied forces on D-Day. We've got to sink our, our, our you know, foxholes in and, and raise up the barricades and keep Jesus Christ off this earth. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? And friends, you can never underestimate man's folly and man's hatred of God. William Newell said, This is the incurable insanity of sin, which wars away in spite of defeat after defeat against a holy God. Really, it's just the logical extension of man's constant war against God since the fall. It's no more unbelievable than the idea that God came to this earth in human flesh and man couldn't wait for the opportunity to kill him. I want you to notice these verses, 19, 20, and 21, say nothing about a battle. There's no battle mentioned. It's an entirely a one-sided affair. We speak of the battle of Armageddon. Technically speaking, it's misnamed. It's not a battle. This is just an act of judgment. It's like saying that there's a battle in the gas chamber, a battle at the electric chair. There's no battle. There's a, a person and there's inescapable judgment. The battle of Armageddon, Donald Barnhouse said, is the laughter of God against the climax of man's arrogance. And if you want to see it, then verse 20 says the beast was captured. And with him, the false prophet, the beast and the false prophet, these two political and spiritual leaders of this worldwide rebellion against God in the very end times, they receive special treatment. They're cast into the lake of fire before the great white throne judgment. And we'll see what that's all about next week. Friends, it's a terrible place to be, the lake of fire. It's what we normally considered hell. Friends, it's real. And there's nothing more important than avoiding it. We can't look at this chapter here, Revelation chapter 19, without getting very excited. Friends, as we look 
the situation in the world today, as we look at the conflict and the unrest in the Middle East, it seems like there's intractable political problems, right? Wouldn't the world admire the man who could come and make a peace covenant in the Middle East with the Jewish people and with all her neighbors that everybody would honor and respect? That man would be a miracle worker. That man would be a Messiah. And the Bible says that that's exactly what the Antichrist will do. And he'll be embraced by the world. You know, friends, it is not the end yet. But the Bible describes a political situation in the very end times. We're in it. The Bible describes an economic situation in the very end times. We're in it. The Bible describes a social and cultural and religious environment of the very last times. We're in it. My friends, the stage is set. And you wonder, God, why are you holding it back? Why are you holding it back? God is holding it back for one reason. No, it's not so that teenager can get their driver's license before Jesus comes again. It's not so that that girl with stars in her eyes can get married before Jesus comes again. No, friends. The reason's very simple. It's because there are more people that God wants to have spared this horrific judgment that's going to come upon the earth during the Great Tribulation. He wants to get as many saved before he catches his church away in the rapture of the church before this judgment comes. So, we all want to see this day come, don't we? Every one of us. So remember, the next person that you share Jesus Christ with, the next person that you lead to the Lord, the next person that you bring to church and they make a decision for Jesus Christ right then and there. That might be the last one. Matter of fact, it it might all be on your shoulders. God's waiting for you (laughs) to talk to that one. Well, of course, I'm, I'm being foolish when I speak with that. But friends, you know, he's waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. And we can have a role in filling up that fullness. We can have a role and bringing people to Jesus Christ. Friends, I don't know about you, but I want to be on the right side of Jesus in this beautiful scenario. I want to be behind him with his armies, not in front of him. So let's just pray, Lord, make us ready for that day. Father, that is our prayer here tonight. Make us ready for that day. You know, Lord, when we think of how heaven worships you, and how heaven glorifies you, it makes us want to praise you. It makes us want to worship you for the greatness of your works and to anticipate the beauty and the power and the glory of this coming day. Lord, we pray first of all that you'd make us ready for that day through the storing up the righteous acts of the saints. But Lord, we pray also that you would Give us more of a fervor than ever to reach out to other people with the love and the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That, Lord, you would fill up the fullness of the Gentiles and your plan of ultimate redemption would go forward. We pray this, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen.